Good morning. It is a joy to be with you this morning. This is the first Sunday of Advent, uh, and so it is hope. The theme is hope. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn to uh, Isaiah chapter 9. We were commenting before the service. Yes, thank you. We were commenting before the service about uh, the difficulty of preaching from Old Testament like prophets, prophetic books and Isaiah. And uh, we'll see what happens this morning. I, um, so today is a Sunday for hope. I'm going to go ahead and light it this morning. But uh, maybe in the future some of you children can help. There are four candles up here and then the, the candle in the middle. So hope. Uh, the last one's love. Hope, uh, peace, joy, and love. And so that'll be the themes, and then we'll, on Christmas morning, we'll have uh, the time to light this. So uh, watch and think about the flame. And truly, uh, well, we'll talk about hope in a minute here, if I can get the lighter to work. So this is a candle of hope. There are portions of the Old Testament where it seems like that light goes out. Think with me. Uh, Isaiah 9, we're going to read the first seven verses here. Uh, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter times, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulders, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken it. You have broken as on the days of Midian." Not for every boot of the tramping warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and evermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. When we listen to a passage like this, we think about Christmas. And yet this passage is written 750 years before the Christ child was to be born. And for generations before this, God, the people of God, the, the, the children of Israel, the people of God, have yearned for that hope to come. In the same way that you and I often talk when we're going through difficult times, we talk about, well, I wish Jesus would just return. Have you ever had that feeling? Well, you just want Jesus to come back for the mess that we're in to end. I, I was thinking about all that, and I was thinking about and, and think also about the way the Scriptures deal with the birth of Jesus. A very brief thing. 
Matthew begins it simply by saying, and the birth of Jesus happened in this manner, and he goes on to describe what manner it happened in. And, and to us, it is the dividing line. But when we think about hope, think about not just us, but think back through the time of the people of God. In fact, I noticed something really uh, interesting. I, I was drawn to the book of Acts recently, and I was reading through the sermons in Acts. Peter's sermon, Stephen's sermon, Paul's sermons in Acts. And it suddenly struck me that all of those sermons there return much, they go beyond uh, the birth of Jesus. They don't start at the birth of Jesus. By the way, the way of God did not start with the birth of Jesus. It, begins in the, it began at creation in the garden. And then God comes to his people, and, and, and the, the, the biblical preachers do this. They, they, they return to something much bigger. And we can, we can best understand the birth of Jesus when we put it in the context of God's people throughout history. And, and it, uh, it makes the Bible make a lot more sense. For many of us, the Bible uh, begins in Matthew 1. But you know what? The Bible doesn't begin in Matthew 1. That is only the better covenant. Well, not even better. That is only the new covenant, new in terms of age. The new covenant begins in, in Genesis 1, where God creates people. Now, mankind sins its way into existence. It, it, it makes them somebody who they never were, sinners. And God makes a promise in Genesis 3, and this is what hope is built on. God makes a promise in Genesis 3. He says, I am going to send a Redeemer. He is going to crush the head of the serpent. And for thousands of years, people lived with that hope. People lived and died with that hope. And it is a mistake for us to think that we are, that we are kind of the pinnacle of creation. I've been writing, and so this morning we're going to do something just a little different. You're not going to get a normal three-point sermon. I'm just going to read some of the things I write. Israel, the chosen ones, the people of God, the people filled with hope. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the brothers, people of God, broken, defeated, sinful, guilty. They're murderers, cheats, adulterers. They're a weird, messy, loud, and often obnoxious mess. But at the end of the day, at the end of each generation, they are, ones, they are the ones who call their generations back as the people of God. They are the chosen ones. They see glimpses of God in dreams, on mountains, when they went to sacrifice their sons and their future while fleeing from the wrath of the rest of their family after they had just successfully conned them into giving up their lands and their birthright. The glimpses came in prisons and palaces, in the wilderness and tents, through burning bushes and fiery mountains, with words from heaven and words from pagans. It started small. An only child who doted on his mother and waited a long time to get married. It's one of those guys where people said, and then two sons. But they fought and couldn't get along. The promise and this hope hangs by threads. It's through these people that our Messiah will come. 
And then the twelve brothers come along, shiftless, conniving, and jealous, ready to kill one of their own for their father's favor. Slavery, prison, and always these dreams, this hope, this unrealized hope of something bigger. And then famine, deep hunger for food, but also for hope. And already the brothers need a deliverer. Perhaps that will be the one who will bring a great light for those who dwell in the land of great darkness. As each generation passed and some great hero rose to lead the people of God, the hope of Israel was always present. Maybe this is the king. Maybe this is the deliverer. Instead, it ends up being years of slavery. Deep, hard labor that taxes the soul and the body. And then the ultimate evil. their little boys being drowned in the river Nile. The river that runs red with the blood of Israel's boys. As the Pharaoh kills their little boys. The ache of generations is heard in the cry that goes up from the people of God. Most innocent little ones being dropped into a river. How can there be any hope in that? But one little one is saved. He's put into an ark of bulrushes. He is t- but he's taken from his family and turned into a good Egyptian. Yet there's this small spark of hope, this little flame that shines in the darkness. But he too kills, and he has to flee. He's gone. In those 40 years, many of the people of God died. Died with the hope that their deliverer would come to rescue them from their slavery. And after a long time, he returns a different man. He brings with him snakes and gnats and fleas and frogs. He turns water to blood in the very river that consumed their sons 80 years before. Animals die and hail and lake locusts consume the land. He speaks and the daylight turns into deep, soul-quenching and soul-consuming darkness. Darkness that could be felt in the very marrow of the bone. Darkness that every child of Israel could understand. Three days and three nights of darkness that mirrored the hundreds of years they had suffered. Slavery and savagery, ignorance and evil. And then the darkness lifts. Perhaps the hope of Israel has come. Perhaps he is their deliverer and now the preparation. But before they leave, they have one final test. They have to give up their best. The ram that they worked so hard to bring good genetics into their flocks of sheep and goats. The one that would enrich their flocks for the future. That ram had to die. And that stinking hot blood, fresh from the body, had to be put onto the doorposts of their house. And then the promise, and then that promised lamb had to be roasted and burned. Think about the smell of despair going up through the land as everyone smells burning flesh in the land. The smell of despair as their best genetics for their future are burned across the land. And yet in that act, there is a glimpse of hope. In the smell of roasting and burning flesh, there's a smell of deliverance. Hope. How can it be found in death? And death comes quick, came quickly from the houses of their neighbors, the slave drivers, the palace of evil, came a deep anguish cry of death. The wail was of the nature that the people of God understood very well. Their sons had been slaughtered in the river, that, uh, in that river of blood. They had died under the lash of their neighbors. 
they knew death. And the smell of the lamb, the smell of the death of their hope, was still in the nostrils of the slaves. The knock on the doors began almost immediately. It was their neighbors, the slave drivers, those who had laughed and ridiculed them for generations of slavery. They came asking them to leave. Leave! But what would they give them to leave? They paid them to leave. And now, for once, the people of God will be paid for their labor. They have gold earrings, silver signet rings, and beautifully woven robes and blankets that were brought to them. And like good slaves, they took them. Hundreds of years of death, slavery, and poverty were paid early that morning as they hastily packaged, packed up their world and began to gather together. The hope of Israel had been realized. They were going to be great. They were going to be delivered into light and good. They left that same day. Their men had swords and their men had the swords and spears of Egypt and they marched together. Millions of slaves carrying the spoil of their oppressors and the bones of their fathers. They were going to a land that flowed with milk and honey, a land where they would finally be able to rest, a land of their own, a home, a place to be. Israel and their God was going with them. A strange pillar of cloud and a fire moved in front of them. And that evening they noticed it turned into fire. No one dared get close to it. It was powerful and reassuring, but also a bit frightening. Strangely enough, the cloud and the fire did not lead them in the most direct way to their rest, to the milk and honey. Instead, they headed to the sea. The sea that had bounded their world for over 400 years. They made it to the edge of the sea that first day and stopped to camp that first night. Early the next morning, they began to hear rumble and thunder. It was the chariots of Egypt. Did their leader bring them here because there was not enough space for graves in their own land? They would die here with nothing but what they were able to carry. What a cruel joke. It's too good to be true. First one voice and then several and then soon many begin to cry out, Let's go back. It's better to be a slave than to die. The Red Sea will flow with their blood just like the Nile. Suddenly the voice of their leader broke through the silence broke through the fear. Silence, he thundered. The God of Israel will fight for you. The God of Israel? The one who has been silent for 400 years? But these people are used to being slaves, so they know how to obey. In their hearts, they're still slaves with lives of very little value. They've heard the promise, how they are Jehovah's special people, how they are the people of promise and hope, how that the God of their fathers would deliver them So many unrealized hopes and dreams. So many dark nights of slavery and death. Suddenly the people of God feel a shift. The cloud and fire that had led them rose, went over their heads, and came down at the back of the camp between the people of God and their oppressors. It lit up the night as though dispelling the hundreds of years of darkness. And now the leader picked up his staff. The people of God had seen how the staff was an extension of his power. He stretched the staff out over the waters that blocked their way. At first nothing happened. Another empty promise? But then they felt the whisper of an east wind in their faces. A breeze that turned into a wind. As the night passed and the wind rose to gale force, the waters began to move and pile up. By morning, where there had been water and muck and mud, there is now dry ground. He urged the first ones into the space where the water had been. Move, he shouted. Get across the river. Do not stop until you're on the other side. Move away from the banks and make room for those behind you. And they did. The waters were like a guiding wall high on each side as they scuttled through the riverbed. They heard the clank and the noise 
of the army preparing and felt a return of that old fear. Would the army of oppression not also move across? They moved as fast as they could with their sleep-deprived brains and bodies made hard by labor. As the last ones clambered up over the riverbank, they saw the power of Egypt move into the same dry channel, and their hearts began to melt in fear. But this time, something strange happened as the cloud and fire that was, at their, that was their rear guard seemed to stop and bend the sea. As it did, the horses spooked and began to rear, and chariots became entangled. Men shouted, horses screamed, and panic ensued. The leader stopped, turned around, and moved back to the riverbank and lifted his staff again. Suddenly, the wall of water on either side let loose, and water came crashing down onto the army of the Egyptians. In a minute's time, there was a deathly silence, broken only by the gentle lap of water as it, as it touched the riverbank. What had happened? The most powerful army in their world, the army that had policed their oppression, pain, and slavery, was simply gone. 400 years of darkness washed into the sea. On the far bank of the sea stood a figure robed in the power of Egypt with a few aides around him, but his power was gone. He had dared to stand in the face of the hope of Israel, and now he was as good as dead. Nothing left but a shell of his empire, devastated and empty. The people of God had been delivered. They were on their way to their land. Their leader with his staff and his connection to the God of their fathers was more powerful than Pharaoh was with his army. Hope comes to life. They, all, they had the gold of Egypt. They were hardened with the years of work. They were the people of God, and they were on the move. A few weeks later, they have stopped again. The strange cloud and fire they follow is not taking a direct route. Instead, it's taking them into the wilderness, in the wilderness where there's not enough food or water. They remember the good food of slavery, the cucumbers, the leeks, and the garlic. At least they had food instead of this crumbling manna, the same food every day, morning, noon, and night. And the water in the wilderness was not like the cool, refreshing water of their wells in Egypt. It's bitter and hard. It stank. It's hard to swallow. They saw a mountain in the distance. The mountain is shrouded in mystery. That evening they camped at its base, and the leader told them that he would, they would be staying a bit. This seemed to be the cycle. Move, then sit, wait. Always waiting for hope. The leader moved into the edge of the power of the mountain. He said, don't get close and wait here till I return. He disappeared. They waited. Days passed. He didn't return. He's gone. Surely he's dead. No one could go into that power. And slowly the people embraced this truth. Their leader was gone. What did they have left? No hope, no direction, and no food. A group of wise men began to discuss what should happen next. Maybe this God of Israel was only a figment of their imagination. They had seen the power of Egypt and the golden cows that their oppressors had worshipped. Perhaps that was the answer. So they went to the leader's brother and brought the gold of Egypt to him. From the gold of their oppression, they formed their God who had delivered them from evil. This was much better. There is no mystery in this. This was safe. A safe God. A God who allowed them to control him with their singing and dancing. And finally they could play. This was the hope of slavery. The leader did return. And when he came, he came with a new strength. He came bearing two tables of stone that had been engraved. The people of God could feel his presence from afar. And like the waves of the sea, silence laps across the party. He was angry. With no warning, he broke down the hope of Israel and ground it up. 
He mixed it with water and made them drink it. Like the bitter gall, it tasted like death. Death. They knew much about this. And death began. Every day they buried someone. Natural death. Acts of God. Anger and war. The slaves had to die. Nearly 40 years later, the people of God finally arrived at the land of promise. They're finally here. But it's no longer the same people. Another generation who knows nothing about slavery, who grew up in the wilderness on manna and a bit of water, is standing poised to inherit what's been promised to generations, the hope of Israel. The leader is still strong. He gathers them together and tells them the story of their fathers, tells them that he, their leader, is not the hope of Israel. In fact, the hope of Israel is still coming. Perhaps in their generation, the true king of Israel will arise to lead his people. And then he disappears. Gone. Taken by the God of their fathers, who is still as mysterious, or rather, as powerful and unknowable as he was to their fathers and mothers. When will the peace of Israel come? When will the hope of Israel come? When will the Redeemer and Deliverer one come? At some deep level, the people of God know they can never rest until he comes and gives them rest. Think about the people of God, their entry into the promised land. And after a short time there, when they'd conquered nearly all the land, except the Gaza Strip, by the way, the Philistines lived in that area. They never conquered them. And then you have the time of the judges and this rise and fall of people and, and kings. And it, everyone did what was right. And then God would have to come down. And they'd see glimpses of that hope. Glimpses of their future. And then they'd, they'd return to the God of Israel. And then, and then they wanted a king. So they got Saul, David, Solomon. I don't have time to... I'm still working on the story. But think about this. This is what Stephen does in Acts. When he wants to teach the people about Jesus, he tells them the story of Israel and says, for generations and generations, people waited for the hope of Israel. They waited. They waited silently. And and then the prophets come, people like Isaiah. And by the way, we like Isaiah. We think he's a polished person. But how about laying on one side for three three and a half years and then turning over on the other side or running around naked or doing all these weird and absurd things? And it's all meant not to draw attention to them, but to draw attention to the fact that the God of Israel is at work in their midst, and the hope of Israel is coming. And then there is silence. There is silence. 400 years of silence. Where you hear nothing. The kingdom is gone. It's all gone. Everyone's waiting. All the Israelites are waiting for the hope of Israel. But now there are fewer prophets, fewer weird people. There's structure. But they are under the hand of another Egypt called Rome. Maybe they are the key. Maybe they will make the way. Maybe the way is to engage the greatest political system with the greatest religious system and in that bring change to the world. And then... In a small village, in a place that no one ever thought that the hope of Israel would be born into, there's a baby born. He is just like all babies, covered with blood and mucus, 
They wipe him down, and he cries, and he's helpless. Born in uncertain circumstances, think about the uncertainty of his birth. It, it mirrors the story of Israel. A mother who is impregnated by the Holy Spirit, would you believe that today? A father who is probably older and maybe a bit silent. He's born into that family. He remains a simple carpenter. He's not a, a, a highly uh, or a wealthy man or one that moves influence of power. He's a carpenter. He comes to earth cloaked in, humi- in humi- humanity. Sorry, He comes to earth cloaked in poverty. Think about the fact that the hope of Israel came cloaked in humanity and poverty and brokenness. And then, that day, see those angels on the hillside weren't singing about this kind of wonderfulness of Jesus' birth and how this is such a special event. They were singing about the fact that the King of Israel had come to earth and the revolution had begun. Suddenly things were going to be different because the King is here. As I was thinking about these, this story, and by the way, I, the, the story of Israel is a story you have to visit over and over again because in Romans, Paul says, who is the new Israel? The new Israel are those whose hearts are circumcised, not whose flesh is circumcised, whose hearts are circumcised. So we are part of this family of God, and like them, we go through long periods of time where we think, is God even at work in the earth today? I mean, the earth is getting The world is just getting terrible. Where is the hope of God? Where is the hope of Israel? Where is there even hope? And in those moments, return to the story because there's little flashes, little glimpses, and it's leading up to something. And sometimes uh, when we think about the end of Jesus' return back to earth, by the way, in the same way that Jesus came to earth the first time, we have no clue how he's going to come the second time. No one in Israel would have predicted that he would have been born to an illegitimate, in an illegitimate birth in a stable in Bethlehem. They knew he was going to be born in Bethlehem. That's the city of David, but not in the situation he did. So in the same way, none of us know how Jesus is going to return the second time to earth. Perhaps we're all wrong. But what we do know is that in the same way that the people of God tried are broken, they're messy, but they are the people of God. They're his children. In the same way, we are his children. And in our brokenness and messiness and fighting and struggles that we're in, we can latch on to the fact that there is something much bigger than ourselves going on in this world. That God is reclaiming the earth that he created for himself. And he offers us a space in that place to do it. And in Hebrews 11, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the thing promised. They did not see Jesus, but they died in faith, at, in faith but having greeted them and seen them from afar. And, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. In the same way that we, we, have, we have not received our final promise yet. Jesus isn't back here on earth to be our true king here on earth, but someday he will be. And therefore, the call for us is to say, the hope is not built on a baby in Bethlehem. The hope is built on the king of Israel who is coming to bring the world and gather the world back to himself.
So when Stephen is faced in, in Acts 7 with this large group of people, he goes back through and recounts the story of the Exodus. Why? Because the Exodus is the the Exodus from Egypt is the, is the picture that is used over and over in Scripture. That's why I wrote it out this morning the way that I did. It, it's, it's the way that God calls us. In the same way that the Exodus is their salvation experience. And, and God, the gospel is, is found in the fact that, that Jesus came for a group of slaves. You're a slave. You're a slave to sin. And, and th- that, that group of slaves left their slavery behind. And they moved into the promised land, but they still had slavery in their heart. And they needed death. They needed someone and, some, and something to die so they could be delivered. Did you ever stop and think, why was there three days and three nights of darkness? Why did Moses have them drink the gold mixed with water, which is like bitter gall? There are all these pictures of Jesus. And so he offers us the same deliverance that he's offered his people throughout history. Come to me, get rid of the slavery. Deal with the slavery of your own heart and, and become free in me so that you can serve and fulfill my kingdom here on earth. And in the same way that we look forward, that those people look forward to the hope of Israel to come as a small baby, we look forward to a day when this earth will be ruled by King Jesus, our King and our Deliverer. Please stand with me. I'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and ever, forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He wants to deliver you into the hope of Israel. He wants to free you from the slavery. He wants to give you the space to rest in the promised land. But you have to be willing to die both inside and outside to Egypt and the power of its gold and silver and its rings and everything else. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for the simple story